I'm Alexander Lawrence Ames, and this is Cloister Talk, the Pennsylvania German Material Texts Podcast. Welcome to Episode 17, Cloister Talk Live, The Faith That Binds, a conversation on Anabaptist bookbindings with Chayla Metzger and Aaron Hamicky. In this episode, I'll have a conversation with two distinguished rare book conservators who have deep expertise in the bookbinding practices of Swiss Anabaptists in early southeastern Pennsylvania. We'll learn about the significance of bookbinding to the religious devotional life of Pennsylvania Anabaptists, consider techniques and approaches these two conservators bring to bookbinding research, and discuss the importance of interdisciplinary scholarship in the humanities and sciences today. This podcast series explores topics covered in my new book, The Word in the Wilderness, Popular Piety and the Manuscript Arts in Early Pennsylvania, published by the Pennsylvania State University Press in 2020. There are many questions and ideas I address in the book that deserve further consideration, so each episode of Cloister Talk dives into some of those topics. If you'd like to learn more about anything covered on the podcast, please read the book, which you can order from psupress.org or request from your favorite local bookseller or library. guessing that most of you who listen to Cloister Talk love old books, the way they look, the way they smell, the way they feel in your hands. When I reflect on how I ended up becoming an historian, I certainly think back to experiences I had as a child, not only reading books for fun, but appreciating the beauty and mystery of old volumes, in other words, their charm as physical artifacts. While the focus of my book, The Word in the Wilderness, is illuminated manuscripts, most of which consist of just a single sheet of paper, the more substantial printed books of the Pennsylvania Germans likewise hold much of interest from a material standpoint, their physical and aesthetic design, the way they were constructed, and the material and devotional functions they seem to have served in the communities that made and used them. This is especially true of the books made by early Pennsylvania Amish and Mennonites, the descendants of Swiss Anabaptists who settled in colonial Pennsylvania seeking religious freedom. This episode of Cloister Talk, the first in Season 3 of the podcast, will expand the conversations of the first two seasons by focusing on printed books bound in a style distinctive to the Swiss Anabaptists in early Pennsylvania. Our discussion will focus on some scholarly work undertaken by today's guests and myself over the last four years that really brought together different strands of book history and humanities scholarship in the study of rare books held in Pennsylvania's Anabaptist libraries. I am honored to introduce my two guests to you, both very distinguished book conservators, Chayla Metzger and Aaron Hamicky. Consuela, or Chela Metzger, currently works at the University of California Los Angeles Library as head of its conservation center. She has also worked full-time as a conservation educator, including almost 10 years at the University of Texas Preservation and Conservation Studies Program and four years at the Wintertour University of Delaware Program in Art Conservation. She holds a Master of Library and Information Science from Simmons College and a Diploma in Handbook Binding from the North Bennett Street School. 
Aaron Hamaki is a senior conservator for special collections at Duke University Libraries in Durham, North Carolina. She holds a Master of Science in Information Studies from the University of Texas at Austin with a Certificate of Advanced Study in the Conservation of Library and Archival Materials from the Kilgarland Center for Preservation of the Cultural Record. Thank you, Chayla and Aaron, for joining me today on Cloister Talk. Thank you so much for having us. It's great to be here, Alex. Thanks. Just to provide a bit of grounding for our listeners, Chela, could you please answer the fundamental question, what is book conservation? I think the simplest way to talk about it is just to say that book conservation is a set of ethical, um, craft, and scientific techniques or approaches that are applied to, to books. So professional book conservators use these techniques um, in different ways each time they approach a book. And the goal is to understand books fully and then to collaborate with others to honor and preserve the authenticity of these physical books. Um, you know, we use techniques um, to keep a book readable, and those techniques are often craft techniques associated with bookbinding, but our work is sort of beyond the idea of, of fixing and really is um, very much about striving to help books tell complete, authentic stories well into the future. Chela, how would you describe the state of research into bookbinding history, and what tools do scholars of bookbinding use to understand its history? Uh, you know, um, I think bookbinding history is a is a particularly sort of exciting um, discipline today. Perhaps because more and more people are interacting with screens so that the special physical characteristics of books um, are maybe more noticeable and more powerful today. Um, Bookbinding history can involve everything from working with scientists to carry out mass peptide fingerprinting to determine exactly what type of animal skin was used to bind a book, or it can be archival, like combing through old bookbinding tool catalogs to find out when certain changes in bookbinding history occurred. It can be more like archaeology. Um, books are an age-old human product, and bookbindings can definitely be studied in an archaeological context, but they can also be um, studied from sort of a social history point of view, um, where you understand maybe how a bookbinding has been decorated or um, structurally um, created and what the decoration and the structure might tell you about who the owner was or who the publisher was or who paid for the binding and what that person might have been hoping to convey about themselves and their place in the world. And that last part, the sort of um, what messages might be encoded in books that tell um, more about the, the context they lived in and what those books might have been signaling um, for a community is certainly true of the Anabaptist um, books that we saw in America and Europe. Erin, give our listeners a sense of how you and Chela became interested in the bookbinding practices of the Swiss Anabaptists. Well, Chela can correct me if I'm misremembering, but I think it started with Chela having to repair a copy of the Ephrata Cloister's um, Martyr's Mirror while she was at Winterter, and this was maybe in late 2013 or early 2014. Um, she had this early American wooden boarded large folio volume with a lot of metalwork and some unique spine bands on it, and she wanted to learn more about it. It seemed to us like at the time there was very little research about them. Um, we had articles by David Luthi, which were of course key references, 
And then there were some blog posts by book conservator Jeff Peachy, who was raised Mennonite. Um, but otherwise, there wasn't much information, so it seemed like it would be a useful avenue for research. So Chela, who was my beloved professor and mentor in graduate school, kindly thought of me and asked if I wanted to explore this binding style with her. Um, I have a background in metalworking and had researched book furniture in school, and I think um, that is in part why she thought of me. I had also spent two years as a conservation fellow working on a collection of German Baroque and German-American bindings, so it also felt within my wheelhouse and comfortable in that way. So we decided to teach a workshop on the binding style, and we mostly learned by making historical models and then teaching the style to others. And that process helped us to better understand what tools, materials, and skills the binders had and the types of decisions they were making. Erin, from a bookbinding perspective, what about the Swiss Anabaptist bindings is of greatest interest? I think the personal nature of the bindings is perhaps most compelling to me. Um, about 10 to 20 percent of bindings we examine have metal date and initial plates attached to the covers that correspond to the owner and a significant date in their life, such as the date of their adult baptism. It's relatively uncommon to have this kind of uh, ownership information for bindings and very rare to have it in the form of metal plates attached to the covers. And the studded leather spine straps, those are of course the feature that is most unique and also the most fun. Chela, tell listeners about the essay we wrote for Suave Mechanicals, Essays on the History of Bookbinding. What were the major findings that we drew from the study of Swiss Anabaptist bookbindings? You know, it was it's a long essay, so there's there's a lot to unpack in there. But um, I think you know, basic thing to understand about it is that um, three of us, the three of us as authors, were trying to really understand the creation, the use, and the craft traditions behind these um, large, substantial Anabaptist collections that are still in use in libraries and historical societies in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania. These books uh, just do not look like many of the other English-influenced um, type of book bindings that are found in colonial and early American collections before 1840. Um, the Anabaptist devotionals have unique bands of material across the spine. They have unique metalwork. They all tend, many, many of them have clasps, not things you see that often on, um, on English style book bindings at that time. Um, I think that having a historian, a book conservator, um, and a book conservator with um, a very strong metalworking background was a great triad um, and was key in this essay to assessing the full beauty um, and use of these books. I think perhaps the most uh, important finding in the essay was to establish and document the very clear bookbinding craft links between early Anabaptist books found in Switzerland today and those made in Swiss Anabaptist communities in America before 1840s. Um, this, the connection be, uh, that these bindings had Swiss um, kind of techniques involved had been made by one earlier historian, but with no documentation that we could find. So now it's really been documented uh, photographically and technically, and I, I think that's super exciting. Um, more broadly, 
I think that it was important to shine a light on the strong influence of German bookbinding practice and German bookbinding aesthetics in the thriving colonial uh, Philadelphia book world. Um, it's not a. It, it's not that this connection was undocumented, but it was documented in occasionally some odd ways. Um, it was interesting to evaluate the work of um, earlier bookbinding historians who had tried to describe these Anabaptist works. Um, because they their background might have been stronger in the English binding trade, um, their their interpretation of traditional German bookbinding practices that were practiced, you know, carried out at a very high craft level in southeastern Pennsylvania just didn't quite shine through. So I, I'm super excited that we were able to kind of get a nice bright light on this as as standard German bookbinding practices. They were not so unusual. Um, at their time, given the uh, level of German um, community involvement in the overall Pennsylvania life at that time, so but it was it was great to have that opportunity. I really do hope the essay helps those who handle these books in the future evaluate them not as sort of strangers, but as eloquent witnesses to the time that they were made, and to understand fully the hopes for devotion that these books represent. Erin, one of your scholarly specialties is in metalwork. Tell us a bit about the importance of metal components on various Swiss Anabaptist bindings. Yeah, so again, maybe about 15% of the Anabaptist bindings we examined had metalwork applied. And when they did, it was very extensive, almost covering the whole binding. They had corner pieces or edge guards centerpieces, clasps, and then metal-studded spine bands. Um, Metalwork, apart from clasps, was not typically found on early American bindings, which are always quite plain, so these bindings really stand out in that way. And the application of metalwork persisted for a very long period of time, even into the late modern era, on pasteboard bindings, which was also very notable. The three of us spent several days in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, back in May 2018, visiting regional libraries, consulting with librarians and curators, and studying examples of Swiss Anabaptist bookbindings in great depth. How important was it not only to see the artifacts in person, but to feel immersed in the landscape and culture of Swiss Anabaptism as it exists in Pennsylvania? You know, driving through the country seeing the architecture, um, just taking in the landscape, meeting librarians, talking to the custodians who cared for these books. It was all just really very, very important. The sense of a living, breathing community who um, long ago supported the bookbinders, who created these still functional devotionals, and who still hold them within their community hands was very powerful. Uh, we do not always get that opportunity as book conservators, and I, I feel kind of blessed to have had it. It certainly made me want to be sure that I told the story of these book bindings right and with complete respect. Yes, I uh, completely agree. Um, seeing the bindings in context with the rest of the material culture in the area was extremely valuable. And getting to meet and interview the Mennonite historians and custodians we encountered was really rewarding. Erin, during the course of our collective research for this project, you traveled to Switzerland to do some comparative research into bookbinding practices in the region from which early Anabaptists in Pennsylvania had come. What did you learn by conducting this transatlantic research, and how important was it to the larger project? 
Um, it was really useful to see the origins of this style and the place that it developed. Um, and in order to be able to consider the ways the style had adapted in the new world because of local skills and availability of materials. And because I was focusing on the metalwork, I really started to be able to identify the differences in bindings which were made in Europe and which were in the, made in the colonies just by looking at the metalwork. So seeing those sort of comparative examples was really valuable. And just like seeing the landscape in Pennsylvania was so important, it was really impactful to see the mountainous landscape in the Jura region where Anabaptists took refuge in the 18th century um, because Anabaptists were facing religious persecution from the state. They fled to the hills and practiced their faith in secret and by some accounts in caves in the area. It was also interesting to find that there was somewhat limited evidence of these bindings in institutional collections, such as the Munstergas Library and University at Bern, um, who were only able to locate eight examples. Uh, this may have been because of the long history of religious persecution that the Anabaptists faced, or it may have to do more with the institutional versus community collection divide. Um, but my visit to a small Mennonite church library in the Jura region yielded many more bindings to examine and allowed me to connect with the pastor and custodian of the collection, which was also a very special experience. Here's another question that I would love for the both of you to answer. The three of us work in a set of professions and scholarly disciplines that have a lot in common, but also are very distinctive in their own ways, librarianship, museum studies, conservation, and historical research and writing. They each have different pathways into them, different professional associations, different career trajectories, and sometimes even different value systems. What's the state of interaction among the players in all of these interconnected fields, and do you think there's greater opportunity for interdisciplinary work? What would it take to bring about more collaborative projects? I think my work at Winterthur um, as a faculty where um, I was a conservation faculty there, but I saw the conservation graduate students working fairly closely at certain times with the graduate material culture students there. And it really showed me um, what I, I already knew, but that collaborating with allied fields is just a very powerful experience. And I feel like the earlier people realize that in their graduate training, the better. And I think it'd be great if more graduate programs and not just conservation graduate programs fostered interdisciplinary work sort of from the beginning. If it starts there, young scholars will likely um, continue along a collaborative path. Um, you know, and, and you know, disciplines uh, tend to narrow people quite, you, ne you need to, because you're trying to really um, understand your focus and, and learn it fully. But then at that point, it's important to broaden that. Um, you know, there are just certain questions that are best answered by collaboration. And many of these are very, are, are likely sort of broad questions, like we were trying to answer in some ways with the Anabaptist books, you know, why does that book look the way it looks? Um, it's a broad question, and it really requires more than just one discipline to answer it. Um, I do think the book history, which is a broader study than book binding history, um, is, is quite interdisciplinary. Um, within the humanities fields, but it doesn't have as many book conservators or even scientists involved as as might be useful. Um, so it's it's a kind of a to do that to to 
focus in on collaboration is it's probably a lifelong effort, but it, I think it does help if it starts young and if teachers begin to model that from the beginning. Yeah, those are great ideas. Um, I don't know that I can speak to what it would take beyond having more examples and positive experience like experiences like ours. Um, I will say that we benefited so much from having you as a collaborator on this project, Alex. Um, yeah, as Trela mentioned, our field tends to have a pretty narrow approach. And even when we were considering where to conduct research as a conservator in a relatively large academic library, I had previously thought that those are the types of institutions that we would visit to explore this topic. Um, and you opened our eyes pretty early on to the potential of these smaller faith-based repositories. And this project was so much richer for that reason. Absolutely. Yeah. You're also a very skilled writer yes. who, can, who can paint a vivid picture with your writing, which is not my forte. So I was very grateful that you, were, that you brought that strength and vision to telling this story. Yeah, that's great. Very true. So if you don't mind, I have a couple impromptu questions that came to mind um, while we were recording the interview. And the first is specifically in response to something you mentioned, Shayla, about book history as an interdisciplinary field, yet also one that um, maybe is still pretty strongly rooted in traditional humanities disciplines. What do you think it would take? I mean, to do, how would book history and you know, book conservation more closely align? Well, um, I think that uh, speaking as a conservation educator, um, conservation graduate programs are not, they require an awful lot of art history before you can apply, but they don't necessarily require book history before you can apply. And so, um, People do not come in with a foundation in book history. And in fact, book history is really not um, uh, taught at the undergraduate level as prevalently as art history, that's for sure. So I feel like um, the the problems with book history not, um, you know, sort of staying within kind of typical, you know, literary criticism, um, communications um, history, right, you know, obviously just regular historians, all of that, Th those, um, those fields work together interdisciplinary uh, pretty well. They share actually a lot of language, whereas the science or um, which is part of the language of conservation is, is craft and science. And these are vocabularies and methods of study that are, are typically just not, um, you know, it, it's a reach in terms of the vocabulary and the research lenses. So, um, the challenge is is conservation programs finding a way to integrate at, at least introduction to book history for those who are going to be book conservators. And I think they most book conservators find that in their own way, but it's not always um, an, a required class uh, for those entering book conservation. You're sort of expected, I think, to find it on your own. Um, and then I feel like really... Um, if you're going to teach a, a, a book history intro, it would be useful to involve um, book binders, um, paper makers, um, conservators, uh, printers, you know, who, who can come and talk to the class about the physical realities. And it used to be that English classes did have their students learn to print. Um, 
So it used to be that English students had at least experienced a hand press and had set type, which will teach you pretty quickly about certain things. Um, that, that has fallen by the wayside in most English programs. Um, so, um, you know, it, it's a combination of getting more material culture involved in typical book history classes and then more book history classes for um, book conservators. And then for scientists, um, you know, it, people just have to know that there might be scientists who are interested. And um, conservators are more likely to be aware of that, I think, than most folks in, in, in an English department. So um, it's... Universities can be very siloed places, as we all know. But um, you know, the the more we exhibit and model, kind of reaching beyond those boundaries, the better. Another um, topic that came up very frequently in every interview that I did, unsurprisingly, I guess, given the nature of my book's content and our essays' content, is this issue of understanding spirituality, which is such a, an ethereal, a sort of non-material concept, at least in a sort of a Western Christian tradition, through the lens of materiality. And how, what are the opportunities and the obstacles of using artifacts as tools for investigating spiritual matters? How do you think we experience that challenge working on this project? And how do you think we tried to address it in the analysis we offer in the essay? Oh, um, Alex, that's such an interesting question. Um, I will just speak to my own experience about that. Um, as, a, as a book conservator, very often um, the materials that I'm asked to work on are um, religious in nature, or, or even devotionals in particular, um, and um, that these have survived through time. They survive through time for a very different reason than, say, a copy of Copernicus survives through time. Um, you know, it's they are personal in nature. They were. Um, especially when we're talking about Anabaptist materials, because the nature of the personal relationship with God would, would um, change um, how the devotional would be part of a person's life or a community life compared to, let's say, a big ceremonial Bible that was meant to be in the front of a Catholic church, um, which might have an extremely ornate cover or actually might even be um, considered to have been touched by somebody important through time and is displayed for, for certain kinds of spiritual properties it might have or, or um, impart to those who were near it or touched it. Um, those are more public um, interactions with a um, devotional or, or um, I mean, most people think of devotionals as, as a personal book, uh, whereas the big ceremonially, big ceremonial Bible less so. But, you know, there's a range of books associated with religions of the book. And, um, you know, by that, I mean, Judaism, um, the Islamic world and, and Christianity, these are considered to be religions of the book. And I want to just note that, of course, um, East Asian religions and have their own texts and bookbinding traditions. And so um, they are also religions of the book as well. Um, but I, you know, how, how we interpret that, it can run the gamut 
from understanding more about that faith tradition to understanding how faith traditions interact with just stylistic norms of the time. Um, we can look at a book and it can be compared, and I don't mean to demean the spiritual nature of materials, but their decorative nature could be compared to changes in architecture, changes in music, changes in wallpaper design, changes in jewelry, changes in costuming. Um, these all create all artifacts that are created live in a in a world of sort of aesthetic norms. And whether you are creating something that goes against those norms, for example, creating a Bible that has no decoration at all, or a devotional that has as little decoration as possible, which you might say might have been happening with some of the plainer or un, un, you know the books that had no metal on them. Um, but then the metal could also be interpreted as protecting God's word, or it could be interpreted as a decorative flourish. And um, you know, it, it's an interesting uh, thing to navigate because you're looking at a materials are created in a context, and the context is is broader than the one person who owns it or man, or uh, kind of uh, commissioned it. But it, you know, it, it's tricky how to interpret it, and we of course saw that when we looked at some of the earlier interpretations of these materials by people who probably didn't understand the Anabaptist traditions so well and certainly didn't understand German bookbinding traditions. And so they would say, oh, you know, these books are solid and <clears throat> kind of grim like the faith, you know, and, and that's just a terrible thing to say um, because it just doesn't, grim is not at all the word I, that comes to mind for when I think about anyone's um, faith tradition really, but certainly not the Anabaptist faith traditions of that time. But, but, you know, you can understand that if they're used to seeing certain kinds of decorations on a book, um, they interpret the absence of those as as perhaps a, a lack of joy or something. Um, so these are all the things that I saw myself kind of um, wrapping my mind around as I looked at the craft traditions um, behind these books and then some of the decorative traditions. And then the metalwork was a different decorative tradition. Now, that's kind of a long answer, Alex, but I, you know, I, I think that it's a complicated topic and probably one I'll be chewing on the rest of my career because I deal with a lot of religious artifacts. Erin, do you have any insights on that? Um, I think, I agree with Chayla. It felt um, tricky to navigate in our essay. Um, I think um, there were a lot of times where we we had the impulse to sort of to try to interpret why um, the metalwork was added, um, why they bound things in a certain way, um, and then we had to kind of you know check ourselves at certain points in the process. Um, I think doing the interviews with um, some of the Mennonite uh, custodians um, was really helpful for me in that light. I think I was very aware, just being an outsider to this faith tradition, um, not really wanting to overstep our bounds in interpretation. So um, I think it that added, added some context that was really useful for our essay as well. Yeah, I think that it's such a you know, a key question, something that we both struggled with, you know, as any scholar would, and found to be incredibly rich and fruitful. 
um, in terms of generating ideas about how how to interpret, what to interpret about these objects. And, you know, one of the best bits of advice I got um, in working on my dissertation, which turned into my, my book, The Word in the Wilderness, um, on this very topic of, you know, how how much can you actually you know figuratively and literally read into these artifacts to understand what they would have meant to the people who use them is don't allow yourself to get so reliant on establishing causality mm. you know, we, we always have this desire when we are interpreting the past to be able to say a caused b which caused c which caused d and so you sort of want to think well this religious culture and a legacy of persecution caused a certain style, caused a certain approach, and you know, you, as you as you say, Aaron. I mean, in terms of measuring one's response and one's interpretation, you can hold both things true at the same time. That there was, say, a culture of text veneration, and there was a sort of baroque, you know. Um, design aesthetic in in the German speaking world of the time, and there was a certain approach to Christian devotion, and all of these things can be seen interacting mm-hmm. uh, in an artifact, even if it's not a direct line of causality. And so, yeah. um, you know, that's and and it's okay to to uh, sort of end it there. We don't have to say clearly it's because of say a theology that the mm-hmm. books look like this. Um, and I think that that's actually an area where um, you, I think we also make a, an important contribution, which is it's these, these, these artifacts are not devoid of theological and devotional meaning. They are also not perfect representatives of a theology or a particular devotional style. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting challenge that I think is common to all material culture research. You know, how, how much can you actually interpret about what people thought based on um, artifacts, especially those that may, you know, may not be text-based. Um, so it's, it's an interesting question for sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Chela and Aaron, for sharing your fascinating insights about book conservation, bookbinding, and the Swiss Anabaptists in early Pennsylvania with us. For Cloister Talk listeners who are interested in learning more about this topic, please acquire Volume 6 of Suave Mechanical's Essays on the History of Bookbinding, published by the Legacy Press of Ann Arbor, Michigan in 2020. In Suave Mechanical's, you will find the essay that Aaron, Chela, and I co-authored, titled The Faith That Binds, Swiss Anabaptist Devotional Bookbindings in Early America. For more information, visit thelegacypress.com. You can also learn more about the history of Anabaptism and the Mennonites in Pennsylvania by reading Chapter 1 of The Word in the Wilderness, titled Heaven is My Fatherland, Manuscript Culture in an Age of Evangelical Piety. On the next episode of Cloister Talk, we will visit one of Philadelphia's most enchanting library spaces, the Horner Memorial Library of the German Society of Pennsylvania, with its elegant reading room built in 1888. We will chat with two people who have been integrally involved in the library's work for many years, learn about the history of this ethnic society's library, and consider what its collections have to teach us about ethnic pluralism in American life. 
If you enjoyed this podcast episode, I hope you will consider reading The Word in the Wilderness. To purchase a copy, just visit psupress.org, or you can also request it from your favorite local bookseller or library. Please note that Penn State Press is a nonprofit scholarly publisher and part of the Penn State University Libraries. Your purchase of the book supports the work of nonprofit, peer reviewed academic publishing, a vital component of the United States information landscape in the 21st century. Please also check out the new Word in the Wilderness official study guide, available at wordinwilderness.com clubs, which can help structure your reading of the book and point you in the direction of further resources. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to continuing our conversation on the next episode of Cloister Talk. <laughs>